0: Hello and welcome to Man on the Clappemoni Bus Sport Review. Today I'm going to sort of mainly focus on Tottenham and there's going to be sort of a few other strands of thought that I want to really sort of turn into a narrative and the conclusion. So I'll really start with my own personal because of obviously as a season tick holder at Spurs, you know, Sunday was a hugely emotional day in terms of just realising that the stadium isn't going to be there anymore. Because I I didn't realise until I actually lit this up that actually I'd been to more than ten percent of all the games at White Hart Lane, which just to me was just mind blowing. Considering the stadium had been eighty eight years old before I'd even pitched up there, before I was even born, and it was did the maths ninety six years old before I'd even you know set foot in the place, which is just insane. But I think. What I love about the old stadiums, so you, the ones that you, you grew up with, so you got Old Trafford, Highbury, Stafford Bridge, Upton Park, is that in some ways all of those stadiums end up explaining why the football club as it is, whereby you get sort of modern stadiums. And it, from no fault of that on, aren't the same. In other words, you know if you look at Sunderland and Middlesbrough, Essen you know, Park and Roker Park explain part of the reason why they, those clubs become as they are. The Riverside and the stadiums are like, don't. They're just nice stadiums, you know, put in the right, vaguely the right location. And really, only mo- the thing that modern stadiums don't do is that they don't really have as much of an impact. Yeah, Britannia Stadium has a great atmosphere, but that doesn't quite really explain why Stoke City have ended up where they are. So, yeah, if you take Stoke as an example... The problem that Stoke have at the moment, probably more than anything else, is that they don't, particularly speaking, have a plan. And by plan, what I mean is a way that they can basically move on. They're sort of trapped, because at the moment, really what their problem is, is that they're, what they're trying to do is they're trying to, in effect, diversify. So they're trying to play sort of really lovely football with nice ball-playing players and to a, you know, a high standard. Which is in effect essentially, you know, in effect a uh, rejection of Pulis ball. Cause I could understand why, because in the end what happened was is that Pulis had gone stale, the club hand was going a bit stale, and you could just see that it was one that, that it was running out of steam. And that if it carried on, eventually they were probably going to go down. Sooner rather than later. So yeah, and even Pulis, I think, admit that himself, and that he moved on and both both of them had have done better since the divorce in certain respects. So in the end, what they couldn't do, they couldn't just hire Pulis Mark II. That was probably just going to, you know, make the situation worse. So they'd gone with Mark Hughes and it sort of it was very much an upwardly mobile move. And then sort of the players that Mark Hughes was bringing in, I mean a lot of them had the same age and it was you could see what they were doing. Hughes thought, great, I can get all these brilliant players that, you know, probably a few years ago Stoke couldn't have got. And the agencies. Well, if I can put all my clients in England, the money, you know, their their wages go up in comparison with the other main European leagues. Stokes, you know, they're uh, they're not fighting relegation. If they do really well, that puts them in the shop window for bigger clubs. But what what's ended up happening is is that it's never quite worked. You know, Stoke go on these sort of runs, and you think, oh, they could go in a top. You know, top 10, top 8, you know, they could, there could be a cup run in it, or they could qualify for the Europa League and then kick on. And it, and it never really happens in that regards. And it hasn't. And now you've got to these sort of situations where they get to, you know, 40-plus points, but they don't really kick on, and they end up sort of in mid-table, and they have sort of runs. So it's like at the start of this season and the back end of last season, they got battered a few times because, in effect, they weren't really... Competitive, you know, they were trying to play nice football, and but the teams in the top six, seven, eight, not only can they, you know, they can overwhelm Stoke's defense. Their defenses were able to stop Stoke, and really, and so as a result, the problem is, is that there's almost a lack of history. In other words, the the previous success that Stoke's had was so many years ago. You're talking about maybe the mid seventies, maybe the, a, a sort of small patch in the eighties. Is that it's not really relevant. Or even the sort of the success they had with sort of Stanley Matthews, like even further back in antiquity, is that there's nothing that they can really, you know, you can't draw from that. You know? so and the problem is, is that, you know, by going down the sort of Mark Hughes and you know the trying to diversify, trying to you know kick on, is that they've had to reject Pulis, which is really where their greatest success is. Their greatest success is they get promoted, they you know batter teams at home they you know, get into the sort of top half of the table they go to cup finals and semi-finals and that's well the problem is is that where where does mark you know in effect they're probably too small as a club and in terms of infrastructure and wages and transfer fees to really compete with you know your everton's your southampton's teams with you know basically more money more history and better resources and infrastructure they, they can't compete so when they try to play that sort of open brand of football, when it works, when they have these sort of five, six, seven game runs, eh, it's brilliant. But in the end, they hit up against you know the buffers a lot quicker than the Pulish team did, because once you take away that sort of home advantage of the Britannia, you know if they're trying to play lovely football and all the rest of it, then they're just that much more beatable. Which was where. Pulis' team was is that they could play a bit of football, but they were so tough, and the, the fans really fed into that atmosphere. But that that is is in that point, that's probably the one sort of Premier League case study where the ground sort of has had an impact. But it's more the people that were there. In other words, Pulis Hughes, you know the, the increasing money in the game, which has allowed you know Stoke to maybe try and get better players. The, only, the other ones that tend to be negative so you think well the reebok stadium the problem was is that, that they've admitted actually it's probably about 2 or 3 miles too far out of town which is why sometimes they get really crappy attendances and you yeah, know the emirates well it's a lot further away from the, the pitch than anyone really anticipated and the atmosphere hasn't really you know can times be really quiet which is you know but again the emirates has a great absolute when arsenal are playing well it doesn't you know and it's always somewhat negative, whereby the old stadiums, and this is obviously history and all the rest of it, the, what they do is they add something. And they explain better than what modern stadiums can. So if you, if you take Stamford Bridge, not to get into any of the deepness of the history, basically what it is... Is that they built Stamford Bridge as a sporting mecca. So the idea was it had a cinder track, it had a you know, so it could be a, a velodrome, it could be a running track, a bench, you know, you could run greyhounds there, and a you know, with the principle that it eventually, like something like speedway. So they had all these options. You could do athletics on the the infield. You know, you could do baseball, you could do football, rugby. You could theoretically do cricket. That was what they built that stadium for. And they wanted an anchor tenant. The most logical case was Fulham. Small ground, even back in those days, because you had the river, the road wasn't getting any bigger. And so the owners of Stamford Bridge went to the Fulham owner, Henry Norris. How would you like to use our, you know, stadium? Makes sense, bigger capacity, closer to the kind of trains and you know, the amenity, you know, transport. And like all business deals, it falls down over a personality conflict. And as a result, they're left with this stadium. They put a huge, amount, decent amount of money into, and no anchor tenant. So what do they do? They bit. They just form a new club, and that becomes Chelsea. So really, the entire sort of history of Chelsea is dominated by Stamford Bridge. As long as they have Stamford Bridge, no matter how, if things go wrong, as long as they've got Stamford Bridge, because of the the the, the because of its location. Because of its value as a property asset, they've got hope that, and so part of the a lot of the history in the seventies and eighties where Chelsea aren't doing well, it's not so much. Yeah, that's important, but it's the battles off the pitch is trying to get ownership of the ground so that they don't fall into the hands of a you know, various rapacious owners who basically want to get who can just palm Chelsea off somewhere in West London, let's just, just acton somewhere like that, and sell the ground. Pocket huge amounts of money, and eventually, you know, they they end up owning the ground. So you've got the CPO, and that really explains a lot of sort of Chelsea's why things happen, and to an extent Arsenal because you have the Woolwich Arsenal thing. So they basically, if you think, if they imagine counterfactual history, imagine if Arsenal had never left uh, Southeast London, Plumstead, Woolwich, what what would they be? And because you you have to see that you can't imagine them being anything more than about a Charlton, a somewhere of, across a, a between Charlton and Leighton Orient. You know, probably, maybe a Premier League team for a few years, but more than likely a League One, maybe lower championship, on, and if they have a good team. But that's it. And that's where Henry Norris, who takes Arsenal to North London and Islington, doesn't doesn't want that. You know, he sort of has that at Fulham. That's why he leaves Fulham, you know, goes there, an empire builds Arsenal because he sees that the land in Islington and the transport and the sort of growing population. He sees that that's where you could build a super club, and that's where you get Highbury, and that's why you get. That's why Arsenal basically have never been relegated. It's just the the, the location, the organisation of the club. This is someone who was basically far sighted enough to see what the future was, and then put a club that was future proofed and and so as a result the ownership's usually been strong whereby if you look at uh, tottenham uh, west ham even chelsea there's always been an element of you know ownership crisis or battles arsenal don't really have boardroom battles you know they're, 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 it's pure stability in a regard in other words when they leave you know highbury they move to the emirates the emirates is nearby it's perfectly but you know all of that <laughs> And they they sort of don't really miss a beat in that regards. And they've got strong, stable management. And that, that's fair enough. And so, as a result, in effect, why do Spurs become Spurs? And what role does White Hart Lane play in that? It is what's quite interesting to me. So, in effect, Spurs are basically the offshoot of a cricket club. Ordinary cricket club. It could literally be the cricket club that you play for. It really was not that big. There was no you know, it was just a bunch of boys playing cricket on Hackney Marshes of a summer. They decide in 1882, well, we don't want to keep fit for the cricket season, we'll just start a football team in the winter, and just to keep, you know, socialising and keep the friendships going and all the rest of it. And they meet under a lamppost. So in other words, they don't meet in a pub, they don't meet at someone's house, they meet under a lamppost, they don't have that much money. You know, they kind of give it a, a cool name in Tottenham Hotspur, for, you know, from the cricket club, and they play on Hackney Marshes. they make their own boots, their own kit. They were angry that they actually had to pay out for a ball. They wish they could have made their own. So this, and at this point, it's 1882, FA Cup's been going at least 10 years at this point, and it's kind of an important part of the the social calendar, like, you know, test matches, rugby, uh, regattas, and, you know, tennis, that kind of principle, basically. And so it's fairly well known at this point. So you think about it, they met under a lamppost to create a a team to play in Hackney Marshes off a Saturday during the winter. 19 years later, they won the thing as an amateur club against professionals. That's insane. There's just the logic behind it that you could that quickly turn into, you know, what became then a professional team. They'd move into White Lane in 1899 and all the rest of it. So there is a sense of dashing in other words how many football clubs at the time you know just park teams were created which one of those park teams then becomes this you know one of the biggest clubs in Great Britain and an important world team in that context historically speaking it, so as a result something like what and the way how they, they buy extra land in other words a lot of you know sort of grounds, The ground gets built up, and by the area around it, and by the time they get big, they actually don't have any room, and that's where a lot of moves happen, and all the rest of it. And Spurs show that sort of level of force that they buy extra land, even they didn't necessarily have to. But it's almost as if someone could see sort of a future. And so, really, I think there's several sort of recurrent themes around sort of Spurs' history. You've got this sense that you know the area around Tottenham, you know, is solidly working class, and yeah, you know, there's been riots. You know, it's it's changed a lot, but it's never been the most salubrious part of London. It which if you compare it to like Chelsea and Arsenal, you can sort of see that, you know, Finsbury's are slightly you know, they're very yeah, you know, they're other end of the Seven Sitters Road. But the principle is, is that Islington is always a little bit more upmarket, and as a result, you know, it sort of <laughs> explains in a way certain elements that Spurs are never quite on the same financial footing. If you compare the the stands that are built at Spurs, the West End and the East End, compare them to the Arsenal's East and West End, you can sort of see that Arsenal are sort of a slightly better run club, especially around in the 30s. Arsenal win a load, Spurs get relegated down to the second division. So really, by the time you get to, let's say, the post-war years, like 49-50, is that there's no real reason for Spurs to have any sort of, not necessarily hope, but... There's no sense that this club is about to become one of the grandees of English football. You know, they've got a great name and they've got a fan base, but yeah, you know, they spent most of the '30s and '40s in the second division. You know, their previous successes like the Cup Final in 1921 and nineteen oh one. They're ancient history. They're not really relevant to you know a world of cars and television and all the rest of it. So they get promoted, and but then they go and win the league back to back under Push and row, Arthur Rowe, which is fantastic football. And as a result, that's pretty much hardwired into it. So in other words, and it follows on, is that part of the reason why Spurs fans have this love of great football, yeah, a certain amount of it is aesthetic and a sort of a bragging thing, but in reality, it's more on a subconscious level, is that as a football club, if they don't do that, if they don't have this brilliant brand of football, they're not as big as Man United or Liverpool or Arsenal, or even to an extent, yeah, they don't have some of the sort of physical advantages that Arsenal have. So as a result, for them to be successful, they have to do something else. They don't have hugely rich owners in the sense that Man U did. They don't have the foresighted owners quite to the extent that Arsenal did. They don't have the sort of. There's not as many train stations around White Hart Lane as there are Highbury. The area doesn't, you know, doesn't do as well in terms of affluence as Islington and the surrounding areas of Highbury. You know, because then it sort of it leads it. You know, you have Arthur Rose pushing run, and there's also the element of tragedy. It whispers, in other words, which I think in to a certain extent sort of half explains the the what we now call like Spursy. In that. In 50, so they, they win the second division 50, win the league in 51, playing brilliant football, push and run. It is fairly radical in certain respects. And they nearly do it the second year after. Unfortunately, what happens is, is that the weather is a lot worse. So the pitch of White Hart Lane becomes like a bog. And so they can't quite get the results, they can't play the same level of football, and they don't win the league. So it doesn't really become like a, a sort of a dynasty, like you know Real Madrid of the fifties, or sort of Man of the maybe late sixties. Doesn't quite become that. So they don't ever fully separate themselves into sort of a team that could become Britain's team in that regards. And what it is is that at the end of the season, they decide to you know try and improve the pitch. In any way they can, and what they discover is that what White Hart Lane used to be was a garden nursery because the ground grew really well, which explains why our pitch used to be absolutely fantastic no matter what. And what they discover when they dig it up is that you have the remains, you know, of the the nursery, which is why the pitch wasn't draining particularly well. But that's the thing because they're a small club in nineteen oh in eighteen ninety nine when they get the ground, really all it is is just playing field that they just basically marked out the person who marks out you know for a club that was literally at that time not professional was the first guy who ever laid a cricket pitch wicket for the first test that ever happened in this country in 1880 so in other words it's the best person they could have possibly got but it's 190, you know 1899 they're not thinking about you know 50 years time you know with the concept of you know Mass professional football being played in front of fifty, 60 70,000 people. That just wasn't something they would have planned for. In the same way that you know, after uh, Bill Nick wins the double, they had this fantastic forward called John White, Scottish. He was called the Ghost because he could just ghost into the right position without anyone really tracking him. And he was someone who they were basically building along with him and sort of grieves. And what happens is during the off-season, he's in his early 20s, he's Scottish and a golf fanatic. So he goes out on this sort of stormy day to, I believe it's was Arkley Golf Club. I think my dad was a member there a few years ago. And he goes out and has a round. He's sort of warned against it, but he does anyway. And so there's a lightning storm happens, and he does the one thing that no one should ever do. And this is a tragedy. Basically gets, you know, some shelter under a tree. Gets struck by lightning and dies. And it's a horrible sort of tragedy. And, you know, again... But this is, you know, in a completely different context and obviously no way, shape or form comparable. You have the sort of tragedy of you know, Spurs' European Cup semi-final against Benfica. And they, they lose the first leg, but they lose it away in, in, in sort of awkward circumstances. Basically, back in the sort of early European Cup days, you had home refs, which meant they were locals and the club essentially basically chose them. So natu- with some of these clubs and some of these refs were under tremendous pressure and you know elements of nationalism for the result to go the right way. So what would happen is, is that essentially for you, for a British team, or any other oppo to score, it would have to have absolutely no hint of offside. By that I mean the ball would have to be... There could be nothing that you could have disallowed for any reason. So Spurs have a few goals disallowed. For offside, that were just three or four yards onside, you know, just naked eye kind of situation, and in the second leg they batter them and they just they go out on away goals. Whereby, if you think if they had won it, you know, the European Cup, the first English club to win the European Cup, could that have changed how? Could, you know, could they have then gone on maybe won a couple of others, what Maybe won a couple of leagues, but they don't um basically it's Man United that do it. But when Man United do it, it's nineteen sixty eight, so more people have television, there's more television coverage. So it as a result and you know, with best and the sort of the culture of the you know, sort of late mid to late sixties, you know, after England had won the World Cup, it means a lot more you know, socially and culturally than it would have done if Spurs had done it in sixty when, you know, a lot more was sort of there was less radio, less television. Let's be moving, owning televisions in that regards. So, I think to put it through, and, and then what I'm going to do is really is try to basically compare sort of the last season at White Hot Lane and sort of West Ham's last season. Because they're, they're sort of similar. And it's topical because obviously West Ham beat Spurs a couple of weeks ago. Which essentially ended the title race as a going concern. Now... For years, I can never quite work out what it was about Spurs that just seemed to drive West Ham fans nuts, and when it could be, when it could have been Arsenal, it could have been Chelsea. Why was it Spurs? And I think in in effect, what it comes down to on a subconscious level is really the the history side of it. In other words, you know, the area around Upton Park, you know, sort of Green Street. No, it's it's a solid working class area and all the rest of it. So it's not the most salubrious part of the you know the world. Same way as you know, same thing you could say about sort of Seven Sisters, Edmonton and Tottenham. Whereby if you compare it to Islington and Chelsea, you know, where obviously Chelsea and Arsenal play. There's a difference. So it and obviously there's in terms of the ownership. In other words, Chelsea are essentially created to fit Stamford Bridge. Willage Arsenal are converted into the Arsenal by a specifically built stadium for them. So in effect, there's always an element, so, of that West Ham really can't compete with that in a way that almost Spurs, in certain respects, cannot really compete with that kind of level of organisation. In other words, Spurs are just a cricket club that turned into a huge, massive English football club by accident. You know, no one could have foreseen it in the same way that, you know, and even if you look at West Ham, is they come from, you know, Thames works. There was and Thames Zion works, you know, company. They created a football team. That football team then, you know, ended up, you know, essentially ameliorating into West Ham United. They then, you know, buy the Berlin ground, which, you know, Upton Park. And I think that's the thing, is that I think for West Ham, it's almost as if you can sort of see that... They could have been Tottenham. In fact, they were probably better placed. In other words, Thames Ironworks is probably a more logical, you know, in terms of the thousands of people that were employed within that kind of industry and in that local area. And, you know, they had just as much chance, if probably not more chance, to have been a great London football club. But they're not. And they're not really, in a way, able to compete with the geographical and organisational advantages that, Arsenal and Chelsea have but Spurs are are too similar. You know there's a, you know they're not a million miles apart they're a few miles apart. They they they're, they're, they're very, sort of relatively similar origin stories. And yet Tottenham are the ones that you know win FA Cups, win the league, do the double, win in Europe, whereby West Ham aren't. And it's like one of the things that you know West Ham fans always sort of focus upon it's, you know, oh, well, Peters, Hurst, and more, we won the World Cup. It's one of the funny things is, is that I think either it was the season before the World Cup or the season afterwards, West Ham finished 17th. In other words, you know, for all of you know the, the success that those three players had in helping England win the World Cup, it didn't actually benefit West Ham in any sense. In the fact that, you know, White Hart Lane, it ends up being a much bigger ground than the Berlin ground. And... A lot of the time, you know, so when it comes down to it, it, I think one of the things that what White Hart Lane and sort of the history of Spurs ended up doing in terms of the closing ceremony is that essentially what Spurs did was, you know, they did what virtually, every, you know, they, they're, they're all similar, they're all much of a muchness. But what they were able to do is they were able to bring out these, you know, these legends in front of the fans and all the rest of it and I think what the point was is that for most of those legends, that was where they played their best football. It wasn't necessarily that they won the most at Spurs, most of them didn't. But it was just that they played well there, in the sense that you've got Hoddle did his best stuff there. I mean, he had won stuff, you know, at Monaco under Arsene Wenger and, you know so on and so forth, but where he was, you know, brilliant was at Spurs, take Dimitar Berbatov, a classic example, he pitches up there, he only really played a couple of years, you know, he left under, you know, certain, somewhat acrimonious circumstances, he told, he just said, I'm not playing anymore, sell me to United, which happened, and yet, he wins stuff at United, and all the rest of it, but in terms of, where he played his best football, as a professional, well you'd have to say, it was at Spurs, he was more dominant, so as a result, the sort of players that were going out there. Whereby, if you tried to do, let's say, the similar thing with sort of West Ham's greatest players. Well, let's say take some of the modern examples. Well, Lampard? No, nah, he played his best stuff at Chelsea. <laughs> Joe Carl? Well, you could probably argue that maybe he was slightly more skillful when he was at West Ham sort of the first time round. But in terms of what he, when he was most effective as a football player and had his most success at the highest level, well... That was under Mourinho at Chelsea, wasn't it? It wasn't you know, in the same sense that you could probably say that. You know, maybe about Glenn Johnson. He probably Carrick as well. He had his most success at Spurs in terms of his biggest role within an elevens because he scored a lot more goals for in his last season at Spurs and was more, probably played a little bit more further forward, whereby United, he's won virtually everything you can possibly ever imagine winning. And played a slightly small role, but he's still key. That's why he's been given a contract extension today. And I think in that regard, that's where I think the, the problem really exists. West Ham have a similar sort of ethos to Spurs. You know, they have, you know, they've in Ron Greenwood. They have someone, you know, who had, you know, they even had Billy Nick as manager for a while they you know in terms of billy bonds in terms of harry Renup, they do have a strong tradition of managers playing the right way they have a strong youth commitment in terms of and developing those players to play the right way and in effect that has ameliorated itself into the football club but the difference is is that and this is where i think some of the i think angst and the desire for west ham to beat spurs probably above virtually anybody else is that West Ham's commitment to great football and youth development? It is more or less a survival method. It's a, a way that they can, sit, you know, they get the players. They play brilliantly well for West Ham. They help keep West Ham, you know, up the table in the league as it's such. And then you can sell them on, which then helps keep the club going as a concern. Whereby, you know. With the sort of the Spurs histories, is that the players you know who play their best at Spurs have success? In other words, Jimmy Greaves win the thing for Spurs. But at the same time, West Ham don't. You know they yeah you've got the I think they won the cup winners. I want to say they won the European trophy in the early eighties or late seventies, and they won the FA Cup. But since then, there hasn't been much else. They've had a couple of you know cup finals, but overall, and they haven't had any European runs. So as a result, sort of the end of Upton Park. It, watching it on television is it, that you know that West Ham and Upton Park are important. They, they've played a, a role in English football, but it's, it's a supporting role. It's not a major role. You know If you think, well, what were the, sort of the great Upton Park games, And you have a few, but none really jump to mind in terms of na- a national television audience. They never go on any sort of major European runs in the same sense. You, the the city ground has a sort of European history. Even the baseball ground has an element of history to it. White Hot Lane, some you know, is one of the, the first major venues for like televised European football. And as a result, over the years, there's been all you know, lots of you know, you have the beating and you have to remember like the UEFA Cup. It was a two-legged. Yeah, you know, until, I think, the early, late 90s, it was still a two-legged final. So you had a home final and your leg. And, you know, when Spurs win in 72 against Wolves, home leg, national television, the same thing happens in 84 when they beat Andelect, And both of them were the second leg, so that's where they won the trophy. So there's always, there's a lot more games at White Hart Lane that have a national resonance, whereby Upton Park doesn't quite have that. You know, they don't get to that many quarterfinals. And very few of those quarterfinals, you know, are instantaneously memorable in that regard. So actually, when you're watching you know, the end of Upton Park, you, you were on, it was literally, it wasn't quite voyeurism, but you're peeking the, through the curtains of somebody else's party, somebody else's wake. So in other words, what West Ham's, what Upton Park means is more local. It's more, you don't understand, you know, why it's so important to us. So it's something that you're watching and you're sad because you're never going to go there again and it's it's a stadium you grew up with. But it's more what Upton Park's importance was a local thing. Because in effect, in some ways, West Ham are a, a local team. So in other words, you become a West Ham fan because you're either from the area or you've had family from the area. And so as a result, that's grown into it. In other words... And there are elements of it in that, you know, obviously when people fanned out from the East End after the end of the war, when, you know, obviously houses have been destroyed and you weren't going to recreate the sort of tenement structures that is, had pre-existing and people did move out to Essex. So as a result, what they did was they did keep West Ham as you know part of the tradition and in Essex. So you just got on the district line or the central line, you went to Upton Park and maintained that which is wonderful. So as a result, Upton Park almost was going back to a, a time that you could never go back to again, in the sense that, and that's why something like Ken's Calf was such an important thing. In other words, you, I cannot think of another stadium where so much debate in that final year was, oh, well, what's going to happen to Ken's Caff afterwards? And the importance of it is a Calf. I'm sure it's an amazing Calf in terms of the food, but the rest of it. But in effect for a lot of West Ham fans going there, especially, you know, older fans, who they're bringing their kid or their grandkid, what that means is almost a blast from the past. You're back to, well oh, when I was a kid and lived in the local area, that's where you'd go, you'd go to that lot of local cafe where you, they knew your name, where you knew the proprietor's name, and you, you, have, you then had a pie or a jelly deal, then went to West Ham and watched the game. And obviously you can't really recreate that in, you know, sort of, you know, the Essex heartland, it doesn't quite work in that way, or if you've moved into Hertfordshire or moved elsewhere. And so as a result, there is a localism and a tribalism to West Ham, which is why, in effect, them moving to the Olympic Stadium was it was basically a really painful thing in, in sort of two different ways, really, because what it was saying was is that, that Upton Park was limiting West Ham. In other words, in effect you were going to West Ham because, you know, they don't win cup finals. They don't have, you know, many... They don't ha- They don't play well in Europe. There isn't really, at this stage, you can say, well, when was the last time West Ham had a great European night? It, it's pretty much the 70s and 80s. It has, there hasn't been a recent... You know, they won the Intertoto Cup, but once they've got into the, the competition proper, they have a terrible record. So, as a result... It then it's a little bit like when I was talking about Millwall fans. In other words, you know, you love West Ham because you have the family and the tradition and the sort of geographical pull of it. <laughs> well, what else? I mean, yes, they play great football and they have the the, 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 comparison, you know, the commitment to youth and, and that kind of history, and that's brilliant. But in the end, all that does is, is just keep you in the league. And it often doesn't. They have these relegations of the late 80s. Early 80s, sorry, early nineties, late nineties, two thousands. It becomes. It's a bit like when I was talking about Millwall. Was that, well, is this it really? And I'm not saying that in like a, a horrible or a mean way. It's just that, that in the end they'd sort of hit up against that the, the glass ceiling really, um, and what they were left with in terms of you know because they've had bad ownership. Terry Brown was a poor owner. And, you know, whenever West Ham have had, and this is where almost the tragedy of West Ham is, whenever they've been close, there was just never been the ownership or just someone out there to actually then kick them on to the next level. In other words, all they can do is basically they have their commitments and their ethos and their community and the fans and the the atmosphere at Upton Park. But in the end, this is the point. Upton Park, no matter how good the atmosphere is, hasn't prevented them from being relegated on several occasions over the last, you know, 20-25 years. Whereby, you know, if you look at Highbury, they never got relegated there. You know, Spurs from when they got promoted back in 50 have been rele- had one relegation season and one year out of the top flight in that time period. And so as a result, really what the, the owners were saying was is that you're where the club is where the fans are where the players are where the history means that there there's nothing more we can do you have to move to the olympic stadium or else you're basically just a higher end millwall in that regards which is why it's fascinating is that really west ham's natural enemies is millwall they're both there's you know they're both east end clubs both have you know Similar sort of core fan group, fan bases and attitudes and ideas, and as a result, it is you know they fight like cats and dogs. You know as in anything like if you compare it to like say Watford Luton, What it comes down to, is that, in a respect that, by having a rivalry with. Millwall. It basically puts them as a small community club that can that fights with another small community club. Yeah, West Ham are bigger, but not that much bigger, because that's where the rivalry comes from. Because they are similar. So whereby, if you then start fighting, if you then say, "Oh, our rivals are Spurs," you're trying to push up. You're trying to say, "Ah, well, we can knock you down. We can finish above you," which is you know really you know trying to get to the next stage. And this is where the Olympic Stadium then comes in. So as a result. What the club is saying is, if we move to the Olympic Stadium, we can start competing with Spurs. We can do this, this, and this. But what that means is it undermines, essentially, why you're a West Ham fan in the first place. Because you're taking away Upton Park. You're taking away that link to the sort of East End history. Because it's Stratford. It's you're close by, but it's a different geographical postcode. What you have is you have an Olympic Stadium. It's not, you know... Yes, you can stick as many... West Ham logos on as you want. What is it that stadium would be most famous for? Is the twenty seventeen Olympics or sorry, twenty twelve even. And it's you. You don't own it. You can't make that many changes to it. It's an athletic stadium that has been haphazardly and very expensively converted into a football stadium of sorts. You you're paying rent, and there's a limits on the commercial thing, all the rest of it. And so. Um, as a result, what they've done is they've then yeah they've added London to it. They're trying to avenge, they're basically trying to commercialise it so that it's not just an East End club because that has a limit on it. In other words, you know when West Ham have great seasons, they a few years ago in the I believe the late nineties they finished fifth, but it's a fifth that didn't lead anywhere. It was just a great season. They're like in the sort of mid to late eighties. They had a season when they finished third. It was a brilliant season. They played some fantastic stuff. But that was it. It didn't go anywhere else. Uh, and that's really the problem, whereby if you look at when Spurs went down in the late 70s. Yeah, they go down, but they win the first game of the season 9-0 on TV against Bristol Rovers. Their debutant scores five goals. You know The team play quite well. They get promoted on the last day of the season. They then get up into the first division. And they go on and win the FA Cup final. Another FA Cup final afterwards. They win the UEFA the UEFA Cup in 84, 87, They get to the Cup final, and in eighty seven, you know, by the you know, they basically get to I think the uh, latter stages of the League Cup. They get to the FA Cup final. They're competing for the league. In other words, they just run out of gas. Whereby, if they maybe chosen the league or chosen something, you know, they could have then possibly gone even further than I think they finished third. That's it one leads the other to the other. In other words, when they win it in 51, a few years later, you know, one of the players, Bill Nick becomes the manager, they then go on and have a fantastic you know 60s where they're the winning Europe and all the rest of it win cups, win the league. and are one of the sort of premier teams. In other words it leads on to something where unfortunately when West Ham have success, like they probably one of their best teams in terms of talent. Ends up being the team that get relegated under 42 points in the early 2000s. With, you know, Joe Cole, with Glenn Johnson, with Jermaine Defoe. And you think, well, and Carrick and David James. The talent that that team had. It's insane that they could get relegated. but And that's what it what it comes down to. So what the club have done is they think, well, we put London on the decal. It's not. They're an East End club. You call them London... I can see the point. You're trying to expand it. You're trying to get you know neutral. You're trying to get Taurus. And I get that. But you can understand where a West Ham fan would feel, I suppose, angry or frustrated. Or the sense the club's moved away from what he, you know, from where he was a centre part of the club at Upton Park, he then just is now just another part of the 50,000, 60,000 people, some of whom are leaving early because they haven't paid a huge amount for the ticket prices. You know, you've got... It's not quite as real in that regards. And, in effect, by moving to the Olympic Stadium, the owners are saying, you know what, we don't have the money to really redevelop Upton Park. This is it. It's haphazard and it's not perfect, but it's as good as you're ever going to get. This is our last chance, really, to kick on and try and compete with Spurs and Arsenal and Chelsea and Everton, even to Southampton, in that kind of regards. In other words, if you compare it with the Spurs bid, they both bid for the Olympic Stadium at the same time. Spurs' thing was, look... We will knock the Olympic Stadium down, it is not a football st- stadium, it doesn't work, it's not really it's not built long term, it's just built to look good for the IOC. We will knock it down, build our own stadium, and we've got the finances and all the rest of it. Which, in terms of commerciality, was the best idea. But it, it's a political element to it. In other words, the politicians are like, well, we can't have spent all this money on the Olympics and then knock down the athletics track we would look really bad (laughs) and it would look like we'd wasted all this money when we could have just jimmied Wembley into an Olympic stadium for the thing, saved all the money and spent it on youth sports. So they end up going with West Ham. It's a political marriage of compromise. So the politicians don't look stupid and West Ham get a real sweetheart deal, but the stadium that isn't really perfect for what they want because it's not. Let's face it, no football fan ever wants a running track in front of them. It just doesn't work in terms of atmosphere, a million different other things, and that's it. In other words, West Ham go into that deal because they need us; they don't have the money, and this is where the real problem is: is that you know, the Olympic Stadium? They will have some great nights there, on even the odd great day, but they're never going to love it in the same way they did Upton Park, and yet. What will happen in 30, 40 years is they'll have to move to somewhere in East London with their own stadium. It's a bit like the uh, Stadio Deli Alpi in for Juventus. Seventy one thousand wasn't the worst ground in the world, but Juventus fans hated it. They just never quite got on with it. There's a few times where I've seen Deli Alpi absolutely rock, but there were other times when it just you could just sense that people weren't happy there. And the second that they've moved to their new stadium, which is only about 37,000 seats which is half as small as the Delhi Alpi, but it's their own, it fits what they want to do, and they love it, and they've had this fantastic home form ever since. And that's what's going to happen, but the problem is is that West Ham don't really have the 400 million. In other words, the Olympic Stadium was basically a shortcut to success. That's part of the reason why they were so kind of obsessed with the concept of we're going to get into this new stadium, we want a world-class striker to... I suppose in effect act as almost the champagne bottle on the hall the of the, the new stadium. It's it's almost a shortcut. It's like, ah, well if we get the big stadium, if we get a great striker, then we can kick on. And the issue is it doesn't. They're not able to get someone, no matter how much money they try to throw into it. And as a result they've had they they've ended up having this bad season. It's not worked. they've had problems with hooliganism, they've had problems with the atmosphere with the, the the stewards everything that could theoretically have gone wrong, they've had they've been pasted by a few teams and in the end this beating of spurs ends up being probably the the highlight of their season. But then if you if you can then compare it with sort of spurs yeah you know West Ham deserved it on the day. I I I can't argue with that but it's more along the lines of when spurs leave white hart lane you know there's a sense that yeah you know, they 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 win 17 straight home games they only draw twice all season they only concede nine goals in the league they finish second it's you know they've ended up with a, a lot more of a positive vibe and they're moving into this stadium that is going to be basically white hart new white hart lane you might as well call it that and it's exactly designed how the club wants it. You know, they've got the training ground, the right manager. And they're sort of kicking on to the future, whereby with West Ham, it's more along the lines of events. So essentially they've picked a, st- you know, they've got a stadium. And I, And this is one of the things I noticed from their leaving thing, which is slightly different because it was an evening kickoff, <laughs> which got delayed because of traffic problems. Is that, on their um, pitch thing, they had a load of West Ham players come out in black cabs. And the funny thing is, I didn't realise it until someone said it, the guy sitting next to me at Spurs, it was like, oh yeah, the black cabs thing. And I was like, you know what, If I, it, when you think of Upton Park or that area of East End, is black cabs really what the first thing that you think of? And it's not, it's more of a, a London thing, it's more specifically a central thing, that's where the vast majority of black cabs are. And so it's almost in a way of West Ham trying to move away from being a community club. They're trying to become a, a London club, which then weakens really the sort of raison d'etre of West Ham in the first place and its sort of role in the sporting map. So, in other words, you know, Chelsea, as long as they have Stamford Bridge, they've got not just hope, they've got something that intangibly links them. And in a way, what it's a part of the reason why they you would have thought that considering how much Chelsea fans have battled, especially old school Chelsea fans, had battled to save Stanford to ensure that it could be protected at all costs, how within sort of ten, fifteen years of the Abramovich owning the club, is that they could have yeah, you know, they were, you know, from what the opinion polls seem to suggest, they were relatively happy to leave. Because in the end, Stamford Bridge has served its purpose. Once they got Roman of Brambridge, once they built this level of success and infrastructure, it was always, for them, going to be. Stamford Bridge had achieved what it was supposed to. And now that actually they left it and moved to a different state. I mean, like, let's say one of the probably the best proposals was Battersea Power Station, is that that would then give them a future. Mm where they could really then compete and really establish themselves as a the sort of team that could win not just a European cup but multiple win four or five leagues and become dominant rather than just staying at Stamford bridge with it's obviously with its constraints in terms of capacity and all the rest of it which would then put them in a position where they you know they would win things but not on as on as regular a basis and would then put the sort of constraints that you know a city or a united don't have And that's it, it's that, you know, as important as Stamford Bridge is, actually the future is vastly more important to Chelsea fans now than it was, you know, pre-Roman Abramovich. Which is fascinating, which then comes back into what I was saying, you know, about Liverpool in the last podcast, is that, that Liverpool aren't necessarily willing to give up Anfield. And they're not trying to sort of commercialise in a way that West Ham were sort of trying to do in terms of trying to rebrand themselves rather than being this East End, you know, cockney football club, you know, with Ken's Caff and all the rest of it and the history behind that to then try and put themselves as this Club of London, you know, which is, you know, more marketable to foreign fans and whatever in the same sense that then you then can then take that to Arsenal. Because obviously, you know, in a in a relatively happy ending, you know, they've found a way to you know redevelop Stamford Bridge, <laughs> and you know, it, the same looks like it's going to be you know an amazing sort of iconic landmark in the same way that I hope what New Whitehall Lane is, and this is where Arsenal are sort of the, the the weird sort of middle ground in that, I think. One of the, the the things that I think fascinates me is is that, I think the angst that there certainly is. Sort of surrounding the Emirates it isn't so much that there's an issue with the, the stadium or anything else, or even an issue with the sort of Arsenal Wenger. I think the point that was well, that I think the expectation for the Emirates was that it was going to guarantee a thousand year, you know, Arsenal success, and that you know, by building this stadium, you know, it would just put them in a completely different stratosphere, whereby. You know, I I used to remember at the time Arsenal fans in the sort of late nineties early two thousands would would just go more than out of their way to say you're not our biggest rivals anymore. It's uh, Liverpool, or Chelsea, or Manchester United. You know, it's just it. It's your problem. You are the the small little brother that is. You know, trying to fight us and you're not on our level, which was true when we were like thirty six points behind, and that's what I think the Emirates were supposed to mean, and that they were gonna keep winning titles and and it's not turned out that way. In other words, the Emirates is in fact just become just another one of the many sort of myriad of issues, you know, around Arsene Wenger, around the ownership of the club that have all somehow co- you know essentially coalesced into the Emirates. So in other words, the ownership that basically has given Arsene Wenger, you know, essentially carte blanche. In other words, the Arsenal's problems are a lot of the time caused by Arsene Wenger, and a lot of the times they can only really be solved by Arsene Wenger. So in other words, part of the reason why where Arsene Wenger's disintegration as a manager has been because he's, you know, the problems of paying off the stadium. And so as a result, you know, and the ownership have decided, you know what, we'll just, you know, give Arsene Wenger complete control. We're making our profits because the Emirates, you know, Has this hot, these you know, insanely high ticket prices, and he keeps on delivering us fourth place. Which you know, financially means we're in the black, it's not our problem. Which then means the fans are caught in this sort of horrible double whammy of we're paying for these insane ticket prices, and this stadium, which has basically not helped Arsene Wenger in the way it was supposed to, and as a result, you know, the board are basically making huge amounts of money. You know, essentially, ostensibly to pay off the stadium, and now just to essentially, you know, use the Emirates as a a cash cow without really taking their thoughts, considerations, or even trying to build the new Arsenal. So, I think to to try and sort of end this sort of podcast in terms of the sort of London, the, the suburbia of sport, is that. It's almost in a way, that's why, what makes London so um in, interesting as a sporting place in terms of that. I think there's probably, I can't think of a single a city that's had three teams get as far as, you know, there was Arsenal got to the final, Chelsea got to two finals, 1-1, and we've got to a semi-final and a quarter-final. Now, obviously, you've got, AC and Inter, who between them have won 10 European Cups, but I don't think there's another team even in the, the greater Milan area that's done anything in the Champions League, as far as I know. Um, uh, you've got Atletico that have got to finals, and you've got Real Madrid, who've obviously won 11. Uh, you've got Barcelona, but uh, Espanol have never got anywhere nearby, or none of the smaller Madrid teams, or as far as I'm aware, done anything in the European Cup. And that's the the fascinating thing in the way that, sort of Manchester is pretty obvious. In other words, Manchester United were the sort of the Alpha Club, and uh, Man City are the Omega Club. And you've got the similar sort of thing with you know Atletico and Real, whereby London it, you've got this, because you can't. Yeah, there was no s- central sporting venues. So in other words, you know Twickenham is in, you know deepest darkest southwest London slash Surrey. You know, the Oval is the, you know, basically wrong side of the river, and is in Vauxhall, which is not the most, you know, fashionable area, you know, even Victorian age, even up to now. You know, the closest, probably central venue is Lords, but that was from, you know, 1787, and even when it was laid out in Titan, it wasn't, you know, central. It was obviously far out, you know, further out than it is now, because of the expansion of London. And I suppose that's one of the things that sort of fascinates me. It's a bit like a, take Palace. Palace is your f- interesting thing because you know if you think about it, Selhurst is maybe one stop away from East Croydon, and you know, and in the train you can get to sort of Victoria within sort of less than twenty minutes if you take a fast train. So it's definitely London of a sort, and yet, rather than basically focus on Chelsea, Arsenal, Spurs. Their biggest rivalry is Brighton, which doesn't really make sense because, you know, even from East Croydon, Brighton is at least 20, 30 minutes by train. It's a I presume probably a couple of hours in the car and all the rest of it. And so really, effectively, it's a southern rail derby. But in effect, the way how they've positioned themselves is, is that. If they look into London, you've got these huge behemoth clubs in terms of Spurs, Chelsea, Arsenal. Yeah, you can even add, you know, sort of a Fulham or West Ham. Though, you know, basically competitors. I mean, and you'd definitely say that West Ham are a bigger club than Palace. And yet, what they see their future is, is or see potential, is past East Croydon. In other words, they see that sort of greater South East London area as being this huge target market. And actually, the further, the closer that you get away from East Croydon and, and sort of down into that kind of... where there's not that many professional clubs where they could, you know, compete and where they could get the sort of fan base that could then take them on to the next level. And then it, it, it then comes up against Brighton, which, is, to my mind, is why they have that rivalry. In other words, the... Ch- ch- Palace see fans and see the potential to grow, which then means that, you know, if they, let's say, left Selhurst Park, it'd be to move further away from London, not closer into London, so that they can then, if they got a 40,000 seat stadium, what they could then do is that they could then start taking away fans from Brighton. And as a result, that's where the rivalry comes from. In other words, they can see themselves basically being able to supplant Brighton in that area whereby they couldn't do that if they tried to do that for Arsenal, Spurs, even West Ham to an extent, and Chelsea's. Which then sort of leaves you, you know, and this is where sort of West Ham are left. You know, where will they be happy? I think this is what one of the harsh things that the Spurs fans sang at them was, you sold your soul for this shithole. Excuse my French, but in the end... Will it be worth it for West Ham? You know, c- could is the Olympic Stadium going to be the thing that, that takes them to the next level? Or is it going to be something that eventually leads them to, to you know, does, is the Olympic Stadium going to take West Ham away from itself? You know, can you, you know, what will happen? You know, and that's, you know, and I think in a way it's sad because what you're left with is... You know, if the best thing that's happened to you at the Olympic Stadium was, you know, a lower mid-table relegation team in the West Ham team this year beating Spurs when they've had this great year and when they've got this sort of very promising future, isn't that what the Olympic Stadium was supposed to counteract? Wasn't that supposed to then take, you know, because they had this great last season at at Upton Park. Wasn't that basically supposed to stop West Ham? You know, almost obsessing against Spurs, whereby it seems to now actually reinforced it, which is, you know, uh, I presume, not what the uh, West Ham board were looking for. So whereby you can see with Palace that you can you can sort of pitch together their future and what they're trying to do and how they're going to do it. I don't see as popular a, as progressive, a future. For West Ham, because now they've got this thing, now they've got this 99-year lease at £2.5 million a year. Well, how are they going to then move on? You know, because in the end that they're having to, you know, sell these tickets at you know relatively cheap prices, which in some ways is, is really wonderful because it, it gives people the opportunity. But as a result I think it's going to be hard, you know, because you're always going to have the situation where people will leave early because some of the views are awful because they haven't paid that much for their ticket and as a result, you know, it, you don't whereby I think if if you're really I think engaged is the term. Because I think this is where the problem is is that West Ham are at this sort of cup cross purpose where they're trying to Build this stadium. They're trying to build the revenue. They're trying to build this brand away from what West Ham traditionally are. But as a result, they're disengaging themselves from the hardcore fans, which is where you've had some of the trouble this season arise from. So as a result, you've got this sort of horrible situation where the more they try and outgrow so that they can, you know, compete against the the big three London teams, the more they're becoming less like you know, the West Ham that people love and why they supported them in the first place. Which is why, at some point, I do honestly believe they'll have to move back to East London to essentially build a future that the fans can definitely be a part of. Which is what you have with the new White Hart Lane. Which is why, as sad as it was to see White Hart Lane, you know, essentially be knocked down, which is what the video I saw on Monday, which just probably knocked me for six, but is that Spurs fans understand that the year at Wembley is gonna be worth it because you then have a stadium that is our own in the you know, because the thing is one of the things that leaving Upton Park was so sad is that obviously most of those fans are never gonna go back to that area. They don't live there and so one of the things that probably is going to shock me the first time I go to White Hart Lane is that I'm going to be walking the same way that I've always done for all the years that I've been a season ticket holder living in south-west London. But instead of this stadium, it's going to be this huge, massive... It's going to be twice as big in terms of height as, you know, the old White Hart Lane. But it's going to be there. And that's where the future is, whereby, you know, Chelsea had this future at Stamford Bridge which has all this historical importance. And eventually, I mean... You know, no matter how you know the Emirates at the moment, probably symbolises a lot of the things that have gone wrong between the relationship between you know, ownership, fans, and you know the manage manager. Eventually, you know, Wenger will retire, and you know at the same time the Emirates, in terms of its location, in terms of the architecture and all the rest of it, gives Arsenal a future whereby. I'm not so sure the Olympic Stadium does. And I think in the end, the Olympic Stadium, for all of its original promise, will end up being you know, a poison chalice. Because at the end of the day, you have the fans, you have the ground owners and the sort of players and managers. And for there to be a future, you you have to be in sync on some kind of deeper level. And... There isn't, I don't see that ever happening at the Olympic Stadium. Good night.